many of you like stories? I should see every single hand because everybody likes a story. doesn't matter whether you're little or, or big, young or old, everybody likes stories. In particular, I think people like stories of adventure and courage and perseverance and all those sorts of things, and I certainly do. I think one of my favorite stories, a true story, uh, is about 100 years old, actually. And uh, it's the story of an aborted attempt to reach the South Pole by uh, a group of English adventurers. And it's been captured in film and book. And uh, actually, just uh, the other evening on PBS, uh, there's been a special on it as well. And it's the story of Sir Ernest Shackleton and their attempt to uh, cross the South Pole. And if you know much about that, you, you know that the attempt fell short quickly. Their, their wooden vessel was trapped in the sea ice and frozen in there. And as the ice contracted around the ship, it was eventually crushed. And they ended up spending over a year living on the pack ice, hoping for it to drift close enough to an island where they could get off, where they could get their lifeboats and, and get off. And eventually they had to get into their lifeboats and, and travel. There were 28 of them. They arrived at a place called Elephant Island, which is an extremely inhospitable little piece of rock in the Southern Ocean. And there, uh, they, uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton left 22 of the men, the most, the most uh, sick among them, and he and five others in a 22-foot wooden lifeboat spent the next 16 days at sea, traveling 800 miles across open southern ocean and arriving at um, uh, South Georgia, which is another small island on which there is a whaling station. And they arrived there and uh, disembarked and then had to cross the island itself, which included climbing several mountains, crossing several glaciers, until they arrived at the whaling village where they were able to organize a search party, a rescue party. It took four months to finally get back to Elephant Island, and they rescued all 22 men. So all 28 of them were brought home safely. And it's really quite an amazing amazing story. One of the things I think that stands out in the ocean voyage of 16 days across 800 miles of open ocean, in which there were winter storms and and swells in excess of 30 feet, was that the navigator only was able to take three readings over the course of the 16 days. There was only enough uh, daylight uh, with the clouds parted so that he could see the sun and the horizon only three times. And using his, what we would consider now more primitive navigational equipment, based on those three sightings, they were able to navigate across those 800 miles and arrive at their destination. And that is an amazing, an amazing feat of navigational skill. The, uh, the danger of being blown off course was ever present. And if they had missed that little island, they would have gone sailing off into the, into the seas, never to be heard from again. And it's easy, 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 easy to be blown off course. It's easy for Christian ministries to be blown off course. 
to lose sight of the original fixed principles under which they begin the ministries and to lose track of who they are and what they're about and where they're going and and what are their goals. There are numerous examples of ministries that begin to to reach out to alleviate human suffering and need. Christian organizations, for example, who lost track of their fixed navigational point. They abandoned somewhere along the way the, the inerrancy and authority of the Word of God and thus along the way lost their redemptive message. And so they continued to try to meet the physical needs of people but missed out on the far more important need of their soul, which is to be introduced to the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Christian organizations can lose their way, people lose their way, because organizations are nothing more than a group of people. So as Christians, we can lose our way if we lose sight of those fixed navigational points we can lose our way as well. So let me ask you this morning, just as we kind of begin here, to, to ask yourself this question, what are you committed to? What are you committed to? What are the, the non-negotiables in your life in terms of your Christian life and ministry? What are those fixed points that cannot vary, that will not vary? Where are your markers? Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 this morning. And by God's grace this morning, we're going to finish our studies of the parables here in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be picking it up in verse 47. And uh, depending on how the clock goes, we'll, uh, we'll actually go all the way to the end of the chapter or not. But we'll, uh, Lord willing, we'll certainly finish the parables. There are two parables here in this final section. There are eight total in Matthew chapter 13, and we've been working our way through them. And in these last few weeks, we've been looking at them in couplets, and so we will look at one more couplet this morning. And they are the, uh, here before us in verse 47 and following the parable of the dragnet, so we'll be looking at the parable of the dragnet. And then there is the eighth and final parable, beginning, uh, beginning and ending, really. It's here in verse 52, and it's uh, called, or at least I call it, the parable of the householder. The parable of the householder, or if you like, the parable of the head of the household. So the parable of the dragnet, the parable of the head of the household. And then... Uh, Just finishing up that chapter in verses 53 through the end, there is is something else for us to to be looking at. And when we we pull it all together, I can find three basic principles of Christian ministry here. And uh, so that's what I want to look at with you, is three basic principles of Christian ministry in light of these kingdom parables. Okay, So that's the roadmap. That's where we're going. Three basic principles of Christian ministry. So let's take a look at the first principle here. It's in verses 47 through 50, the parable of the dragnet. And the principle is this. It's fish widely. Fish widely. Now I made these principles very short 
so they could be memorable. And uh, we'll unpack it here as we go. But the first basic principle of Christian ministry, life and ministry, is to fish widely. Now, Jesus has uh, used a number of very familiar aspects of life in the first century to illustrate these truths about his kingdom now that it is evident that it has been rejected by the leadership of the nation and will soon be rejected by the population at large. And we've talked about that over and over again. And he has used the fields of agriculture several times to make some, some points. He, uh, he talked about uh, the process of baking bread. Again, something very common. And uh, last week he talked about the whole issue of treasure and uh, things involved in that. And so this week it's a uh, story about fishing. It's a story about fishing. And everybody loves a fishing story, right? Everybody loves a fishing story. It reminds me of a fishing story that I heard one time, and it was about a one-armed fisherman. It's a one-armed fisherman, and he caught a whopper, and it was about that big. <laughs> Told you, Don, I had a story for you. Oh. So, people like fishing stories, and the 12 disciples in particular, I think, would like a fishing story because they come from the area surrounding the north part of the Sea of Galilee. All with the exception of Judas, or the other 11, they're from the area around the north part of the Sea of Galilee, and the major industry in that area is fishing. And the fact of the matter is that a number of the disciples are commercial fishermen themselves. So um, it's okay to, to, uh, you know, to talk about agriculture. It's okay to talk about baking bread. It's kind of intriguing and enticing to talk about stumbling across a treasure. But now we're going to talk about fishing. And so I think he's got their attention. I think they're locked in on the fishing story here. So this... Uh, this parable, and it begins here in verse 47, we'll read it for you in a minute, is uh, just by way of observation, an important parable, and uh, they're all important to be sure, but, but this one stands out, I think, because Jesus provides an interpretation of it. And uh, of the eight parables, there are only three in which he provides an interpretation, the, the sower, the parable of the tares, and this, the parable of the dragnet. So this is, this is an interpreted parable for us. And I think that's important because it, it kind of demonstrates how, how critical it is that we get this one right. So Jesus hasn't left it up uh, to our imaginations. He has told us about this parable. So let me read it for you, beginning in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea. And gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. And they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fishing. Fishing 
was the main industry of that part of the nation of Israel, the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. They are rich, rich fishing grounds. They were historically, they are still rich. One of the reasons that they are such rich fishing grounds is because there, on the north part of the sea, is the inlet where the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee, and and it flows down through the Hula Valley and into the Sea of Galilee and brings with it all kinds of nutrients. And so that part of the lake is just filled with nutrients, and nutrients attract plant life and fish. And so it it was a place in which there was a lot of fish. The scholars estimate there were at least 20 species of edible fish to be caught and found in that part of the lake. Now, the process here that Jesus describes for, for fishing, uh, the, calls, it's called a dragnet here, is uh, what is more properly called uh, seine fishing. They use a seine net, S-E-I-N-E, pronounced seine, you know, as opposite of crazy, um, fishing. Now, in the, in the, uh, in the Gospels, there are, there are a number of ways to fish. You can, uh, you can put a hook in the water. And uh, you can catch one fish with a hook. And uh, Peter does that, for example, in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 27. He catches a fish and in its mouth is the coin and it's used to pay the temple tax for, for he and Jesus. So you can, you can fish with a hook and we're kind of familiar with that. Also, you could fish with what's called a casting net. So that would be a net normally circularly shaped with a rope on one end and, and weights and so forth. And it would be cast either from shore or from the boat and it would sort of envelop a a part of a school of fish, and it could be drawn in. But then there is what is called seine fishing. And seine fishing, or dragnet fishing, is very, very different. Here, the net, uh, and it can be up to 1,200 feet long, is like a wall. And it is, it is towed through the water. And it, and it captures everything in its path. It just sweeps it all in. The net would be, would be set up with weights along the bottom and uh, floats along the top and so that it would sit upright inside, you know, in the water. And it's, there's a couple of ways it could be done. You could, you could fasten one end of it to the shore and the other end of it to a boat, and the boat would sort of row out and, and row around in a semicircular fashion and, and create this, this uh, circle ultimately coming back towards the shore, and then they would pull the net in, and it would just drag in, scoop in everything in its path. Or it could be fished from two boats. Each end of the net attached to a separate boat, they would row in that same arc fashion, like, and they'd create the circle, and then they would tow it into the shore, and again it would be hauled ashore. And that's the process. And uh, whatever is in the path of the net is scooped up. Whatever is there is, is scooped and carried into the shore, and once it arrives at the shore, they pull the net in, they sort through it, and they would separate out the fish to retain, and all the rest of the stuff that would be discarded. I have a, a picture for you of a, of a seine net, just so you can kind of get an idea. That's a picture from the beginning of the 20th century uh, with a seine net, and uh, you can see either end here, they're pulling it ashore, and it, it's dragging in with it a tremendous quantity of fish. Okay, this is not a one-man operation. This is how a commercial fishing operation would uh, bring in the large amounts of fish necessary to uh, feed the population of the nation. Now, according to Levitical law, not everything that's caught uh, can be eaten. 
We, uh, we don't live under Levitical law and the, uh, the food codes, and so uh, we have a much wider uh, appetite for fish. And Jesus has, has said that that law is no longer, uh, the Mosaic law passed away in that, in that way. But for the people of that time, the uh, fish had to have uh, fins and scales. Otherwise, it was not considered clean and it could not be eaten. And so, of the 20 species of fish, uh, not all had fins and scales, and so not all of the fish were edible from uh, the point of view of their, of their dietary restrictions. Those that were not edible would be considered the bad fish. The bad fish. Other fish that would be bad would be fish that were undersized, fish perhaps too bony to eat, or fish that were diseased, or, or many other uh, fish that just were unacceptable. And so those would be the bad fish, and they would be separated out and, and discarded. This whole culling process, this separating process, doesn't happen while the net is in the water. People don't dive in the water and swim around and separate it out. It doesn't happen until it's all drug up onto the shore. And at that point in time, when they're all flopping around on the shoreline, that's when they separate out what they'll keep and what they'll discard. So, that's the basics of dragnet fishing. And as we, uh, as we look at this uh, parable here, it's important that we, we understand the comparison that's being made. The, uh, the comparison here is, is not the kingdom of heaven to the dragnet. The comparison is the kingdom of heaven to dragnet fishing. So it's to the scenario or the process of dragnet fishing is where the comparison is being made. And the basic idea is this, that when you fish dragnet style, you fish indiscriminately. It's an indiscriminate form of fishing. It's not like you bait a hook you know, with your special lure in order to catch a certain kind of fish. This, whatever is out there, you're going to drag it in. And it's after you bring it in, after you've fished indiscriminately, that at that point, the process of sorting begins. The good fish kept and the bad fish discarded. And Jesus says, verse 49, So it will be at the end of the age. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take the wicked out from among the righteous. And this is important because Jesus is specifically telling these people, these men, that their, their job is to fish. They are fishermen. He has told them earlier, come and I will make you fishers of what? Men. That's their responsibility. They are to fish. And in this case, the idea is to fish with a dragnet. They are to fish indiscriminately, widely. The process of culling the fish is something that doesn't belong to them, but belongs to the angels and will be done at the end of the age. Now, that point is, is, uh, is important and needs to be made here because you've got to remember these are commercial fishermen. These are commercial fishermen. And so to say, I'm going to make you fishers of men and, and the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet and so forth, it would be easy for them to, to understand their role as to be not only to drag the net through the water, but to sort it all out when it arrives on the shore. And Jesus wants them to, to be absolutely uh, clear that their responsibility is only to fish. They do not have a responsibility, nor do they even have the, the privilege of sorting. The sorting belongs to God through the angel, the agency of his angels. Their job is to 
Cast the net wide. God's job is to sort it out. We could say it this way. They are not fish inspectors. Okay? Their job is not that of a fish inspector. Their job is not to determine who is part of the kingdom or who will be part of the kingdom and who will not be part of the kingdom based upon their own personal preferences. They have no ability. They cannot see into the human heart. They have no ability to sort it out. One, uh, one author commenting on this, and I, I think he says it well here, he says, judging and evicting pretenders is a work for which they are neither qualified nor commissioned. Judging and evicting pretenders is not a work for which they are either qualified or commissioned. Okay? Their job is to fish. And the application of that, I think, for us is obvious. It's obvious. It's not up to us. If it wasn't up to them, it's not up to us to try to sort out the, the false confessors before the judgment. We are saved by a profession, or excuse me, by a, a possession of faith in the, in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. We are not saved by a profession of faith, but we cannot discern beyond the profession of faith. We cannot ultimately determine who belongs to God as his children and, and who does not. And I'm, and I'm talking here, of course, of those who have made an attachment to the Messiah. Those who have obviously rejected him are not part of the picture here. But among those who have expressed an attachment to the Messiah, ultimately we are not in the position to sort all that out. This parable prohibits us from engaging in that which belongs only to God. And that is the the final judgment of one's fitness or suitability to enter Messiah's kingdom once it comes. Now, we preach the gospel in which the entrance into the kingdom is very clear. And and in no way is Jesus communicating, nor am I communicating, that, that it doesn't matter what you believe or any of those sorts of things. It clearly does matter. But the penetration of the human heart to find out exactly who they are trusting in we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But to determine precisely who somebody is trusting in belongs only to God. Not to me and not to you. And that means that our job, like that of the disciples, is to preach the gospel indiscriminately. Widely. Everywhere. Not to prejudge those who are fit for the kingdom. But to cast the net. To drag it through the water. To allow it to collect along the way. And God himself, at the end of the age, will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest for those whom he knows. And for those whom he knows not, He will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And that's his decision, not mine. So, wide 
fishing, wide fishing. And this is an important lesson because prejudice, our own prejudices, our own preferences can easily enter in. For the disciples in the first century, the obvious was the whole issue of the Gentiles, right? Are we, are we really, you know, are they part of the fish that we're going to actually, you know, drag in and keep? And it was a big issue. And for, for you and I, it's, you know, it's not so much the Jew-Gentile thing, but, but there are other issues that deeply divide us. And it's very, very tempting to, to sort of look at people and, and decide in advance, are they really suitable for, for God's kingdom? Do they have what it takes? And to begin the process of saying, you're, you know, you're in and you're out. And Jesus says, it's not your job. It's not your job. So when it comes to evangelism, cast the net wide. Throw the net wide. Drag it through the sea of humanity and and scoop in all that we can. But inside the, 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 the body, the people of God, the principle applies there as well. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans. In Romans chapter 14 and, and here in verse 4 in particular, he says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, just to help you to remember the context there in Romans 14, the the big issue was whether you eat meat or don't eat meat. Right? And it was was basically a Jew-Gentile issue, and they were judging one another and saying, you can't really be a Christian if you behave like this. If you think like this, if you act like this, you, you and your freedoms, you, you, you can't be a follower of God and, and, and living with these kinds of freedoms. And, and the other side saying, you can't be a follower of God with your tight legalism. And Paul says, stop. Stop. Stop using your own personal yardstick to, to measure who's in and who's out. Who's suitable? Who isn't suitable? Who will stand in the judgment day and who will not stand in the judgment day? God will determine that. God will determine that. So, so accept one another in a spirit of peace and unity. Fish wise, or widely. First basic principle. Second. Second principle. Feed comprehensively. Fish widely. Feed comprehensively. Verses 51 and 52. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. What in the world is that about? Well, it begins with Jesus uh, asking them a question. I mean, he has, been, he has been teaching them some very important, critical truths, right? Now that, now that the, the situation with the nation has become obvious, and that the kingdom is going to be postponed, and so he's now just asking them, in, in light of the rejection of me as Messiah and the, and the spirit, the dynamics that are going to be going on in the ensuing period of time until, until my kingdom finally comes... Have you understood all the things I've been telling you? 
And they say, yes, yes. How often we speak better than we know, right? They respond in the affirmative, yes. Now we know later that that they didn't get it all and that it it took decades, really, through through the book of Acts and and even later into the Gospels when they're, they're asking the same fundamental questions over again and he's looking at them and he's saying, are you so dull? I've already told you these things. So, so they didn't really get it all, but they got some of it. And, and Jesus, he's gracious with them. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you blockheads, you, you didn't get it. He, he just accepts their answer. And he moves on. He moves on and, and he begins to teach them something else. I was thinking about this and, and I was thinking, you know, have you, ever, have you ever had this experience? I've had it. Where you're sitting in class, you know, so for some of you, you've got to think back a ways. But you're, you're sitting in class in, in school, and the, and the teacher's up there and, and giving a lecture. And, you know, I think of math class, because that was particularly difficult for me. And, and doing these problems on the board and so forth. And, and I'm sitting there, and I'm copying it all down, you know. And, and I think I've got it. You know, I've, I, every step I've written down, and I think I've got it. And then, I, then I'd go home, and I'd open the book to do the first math problem. Am I alone in this, by the way? You know, anybody... Anybody an amen here? Okay. Want to own it? Maybe it's history for you, but, you know, for me it was math. And, and I get home and I open a math book. Man, I have no idea. I thought I had it. it seemed clear to me at the time. But now when I get home, it's, it's just eluded me. It's eluded me. And I, and I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly what's going on here. The disciples, they've listened to the parables. Jesus has explained several of them to them. And they think they've got it. He says, do you understand? Yeah, yeah, we understand. Yeah, well, wait till you get home. You know, wait wait till you have to apply it. You're going to find out that you don't understand. Actually, what's going to happen is you're going to realize that there are some major questions here. And Jesus anticipates I think that's what's happening here. I think that's why he, he gives us what he gives us here in verse 52. He anticipates the question that's going to come when they get home to do the homework. That they haven't figured out themselves. But so he knows it's going to come up. And so he, he sort of preempts them. And, and the basic question is this. Is, is If we're to fish widely, how do we go about that? How do we go about the process of, of fishing widely? We understand that's what we're supposed to do. Said another way, what's our, what's our equivalent of the dragnet? What's our dragnet that we're going to use? And so Jesus tells him another parable here, and it's, it's the parable of the head of the household, or the parable of the householder, and, and it answers that question for them, and it answers the question for us. It answers the question for us. Jesus said to them, verse 52, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household, who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Now the term scribe, familiar to them, less so to us, but it, but it harkens back to Ezra. Harkens back to Ezra. Ezra was the scribe preeminent 
who, following the Babylonian captivity as the people came back into their land, he became the one who, who taught and instructed the nation out of the law. He became the teacher of the nation. And that, that role of scribe, which is essentially the role of, of uh, interpreting the, the Mosaic law and then expounding the interpretation of the Mosaic law, beginning with Ezra and then to, was sort of handed off to a wider group of men that became the scribes of the nation. And it was a very wonderful thing. And for a, for a long period of time, it was, a, it was a blessing of God to the people of God to have these men who, who gave their lives to the study of the Word of God and the, and the teaching of the Word of God. But over time, what happened was is, is that their interpretations, their teachings began to supersede the Word of God. Their traditional understanding their pronouncements, their so forth, began to become more authoritative than the very Word of God. To the point where by the time Jesus comes along here, what he says of the scribes is that they have transgressed the commandment of God for the sake of their own traditions. And so they become his enemies. Some of the most hostile members of the nation become these very scribes. And it's at this point, it's at this point of the hostility, the conflict with the scribes, it's reached its, its point of open antagonism, right? Back in chapter 12, they've, they've rejected him, not what he has done, but the source of the authority by which he did it. They attribute the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God in the ministry of Messiah to Satan himself, and so they are, they are openly antagonistic and hostile to God's Messiah. So they must go. They must be swept aside. And Jesus is, is going to do it, and, and, he, and he speaks of it here. He's going to constitute a, a new group of teachers for the nation of Israel, for the remnant of the nation of Israel. And these new teachers are former fishermen who will now be trained in the school of Christ. They didn't go to the rabbinical seminaries, right? These are, these are fishermen. And yet now they are to become the new scribes of Messiah's kingdom. And Jesus is describing here in this parable how they are to go about their work as the new scribes how they are to go about it, how they are to be the fishers of men. And he does it by drawing again on, a, on something that's well known to them, something that's, that's common in everyday life, and, and it is the image of the head of a household. He says, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is, is like the head of a household. In what way? Well, then that he brings out of his treasure, or we could say storage, things new and old. Now, that's not hard to understand if we'll stop for a moment and think about it. We live in a disposable world. I get that. Right? Nobody, nobody takes their electronics in to be repaired anymore. We, you know, we, we have a special electronics junk collection point. 
So we're all about the new. I get that, right? Every two years, you sign a new cell phone contract, you get a new phone, and you junk the other one. So, so there's a great amount of disposableness in our society, but we still, we still, uh, particularly if you're, if you're in a larger family, you, you understand the principle here, and, and that's the principle of packing away some things that are, that are older or, or used and taking them back out at a later date. For example, a family often will, will pack away the clothes of one child, right, and put them away in storage until the next child comes along and is of the right size and so forth, and they'll dig out the clothes. And that's how they recycle and keep it going. We understand leftovers, at least at some level. Right? At the end of the meal, so some of the food that's left over is, is packaged and is put either in the freezer or in the refrigerator. And it is brought back out and combined with something new and you have a meal. Right? So you, you take the leftover veggies. There's a lot of those at my house. And you take the, the leftover veggies. And then you, you combine it with new dough and cheese. And voila, you have... A pizza. That's where pizza comes from. It's a way to eat leftovers. Or if you grow up in an Asian home, it's fried rice. Okay, so we we understand the basic principle, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying in, in the household of the first century, the head of the household would provide for his household by having a storage area where there were old things, and they would be brought out and combined with new and that would care for the household. That's the picture. So, how does it, how does it apply to the disciples? What are they to do with this? Well, they are, they are the new scribes. They are being constituted as the new teachers. And they are to fish. And they are to fish utilizing what's old and new. They're to fish utilizing what's old and new. Well, what's old? Well, what is old is, is their scriptures. The Old Testament, what has been revealed to them is the word of God and the teachings of that Old Testament with regard to Messiah's kingdom. That's the old truth. And now there's new truth. Well, what's the new truth? Well, the, the new truth is that what Jesus has been revealing to them and, and teaching them. And so as they, now, as they now cast the same net wide and they drag it through the sea of humanity, scooping up all that comes in its way, they're to do it by a combination of the old and the new. The former truth and the, and the present truth. They're not to discard the former truth or present truth only. They're not to, take, you know, they're not to disregard the present truth and, handle, and use the older truth only. They're to use it in combination. Maybe said another way is, is uh, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20, when he, when he gives them the Great Commission, they are, they are to teach all that Jesus had commanded them. That encompasses the old and the new, right? I did not come to, to um, set the law aside, but to fulfill it. Now, the Apostle Paul understood this. The Apostle Paul understood this principle. And the reason I know that is because in, in Acts chapter 20, when he is, he is recounting his, his ministry in Ephesus, 
And he is, he is speaking there to the, to the leaders of the church. And he makes a really interesting state with them, he, uh, statement to them. He's, he's sort of summarizing his ministry among them. And he said, I taught you. And the New American Standard says the, the whole purpose of God. But the, I think it's the King James. It's the, old, the whole counsel of God. And what he meant is, is that I taught you everything from, from Genesis to through, in his case, at least through the Gospel of Matthew. The old and the new. So what does that mean to you and I? What do we do with that, that truth, that reality? What does it mean to us? Well, I think it's simple. And that is that, that our Christian life, our Christian ministry, needs to be built upon a comprehensive understanding and teaching of the Old and New Testament. The Old and the New. We have treasures in the old, treasure in the new. And we're to, we're to draw out of both. It, it is our treasury. It is our storehouse. As we bring truth to bear on the Christian situation, we're to do it by, a, by an accurate and faithful exposition of the entire Word of God, the whole counsel of God. We are to teach the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis to Revelation. So is the, is the New Testament more important than the Old Testament? Can we forget the Old Testament and just teach the New Testament? The answer is no. Because the New Testament uh, is, is based upon the truth of the Old Testament. We cannot have one without the other. And in fact, to do so is to, is to operate in a sub-Christian fashion. To operate in a sub-Christian fashion. Now that applies, to, I think, uh, personally, uh, to the way, the way we approach the Scriptures as individuals. You can't just read the New Testament. Your, your Bible reading habits can't, can't avoid the Old Testament. You can't, you can't just consider it all flyover and, and, and forget about it and say, well, you know, I'm just the New Testament. I don't understand all that old stuff anyway. Because without understanding that old stuff, you, you're not going to understand the new stuff, not rightly. So we need to be people of the book from beginning to end. We need to feed comprehensively. Feed comprehensively. And, and our preaching and teaching ministries need to be comprehensive. Now, we're preaching Matthew's gospel, right? Right? That's a New Testament book. How come we don't preach an Old Testament book? Well, we're learning the Old Testament as we're going through Matthew's gospel. How many times has it forced us to go backwards, right? And to to go back into the Old Testament and understand what's going on in the Old Testament. So we are teaching comprehensively the whole counsel of God. Fish widely. Feed comprehensively. I don't know if I want to draw my time out of the bank or not. Nah. Let's take it. We'll just come back next week. You going to come back next week? Just think about, we'll leave that last point. We'll come back at it. Just think about what's gone before us. Eight parables, right? Eight parables have have. 
Jesus has given him. We have spent a long time looking at them. And in, that, in, in looking at these parables, our, our commitments are, are challenged. Challenges are commitments. How do, we, how do we understand reality? How do, we, how do we approach the world? For the disciples, it says that things got to change for them. There's got to be new attitudes. There's got to be new methodologies. Even, as we'll find, there'll be new relationships. Everything changes. Everything changes. And that's true for you and me. That is true for you and me. We we got to be committed to a, to a wide fishing ministry. Got to be committed to that. We, we, we do not have the, the prerogative or the authority of God to, to, to target and exclude. We need to draw that net really, really wide. We need to think about what that means for us as a church. We need to think about what that means. For someone to, to come and to be part of this church, do they have to conform to a certain standard before they can feel welcome? Is it, is it conformity before conversion? I think sometimes we can portray that, that kind of an idea. Is that, you know, you gotta, you got to look a certain way, you got to act a certain way, you can, or you're not going to fit. Beloved, we, we should not be like that. We should not be like that. To the extent that we find that in our own hearts, we need to root it out. We need to root that out. God saves by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's all that's necessary. And how that's worked out we don't really have the ability to see. So we need to drag that, that gospel net really wide and be scooping, 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 and let Jesus sort it all out in the end. I think in terms of a comprehensive feeding ministry by the grace of God, we've, it's kind of a core value of ours here. I'm not concerned doesn't mean we take it for granted. doesn't mean we uh, relax our guard in any way. We need to continue to teach the Word of God, all of the Word of God, including the hard parts, including the parts that challenge us, right, confront us, things that we find uh, intellectually difficult. We can't skip over them. Things that we find spiritually challenging. We can't, we can't pass topics that are unpopular in our day and age. We, we dare not neglect need to teach the whole Word of God. By God's grace, I think, I think He has helped us in the years to be faithful to that, but we can always do better. We can always do better. So as we finish up these, these uh, parables uh, together, may God grant us grace to, to really think seriously about the implications of them for our own life and ministry. 2014 is upon us. It's going to be a good year. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the things we have learned in these last months as we have made our way through these eight parables. We have been confronted along the way with things. We have learned some things. 
We've been encouraged, strengthened. And yet we've come to realize there is so much more work to do. And I pray, Father, for your enabling grace through your spirit and his word to transform us. Help us to be a people who who thinks widely, fishes widely. Not a people who will rule out who could be part of the kingdom and who could not based on our own view of the world, our own preferences. Lord, may you help us to to take the gospel to the entire world. And Lord, may you help us to realize that a good bit of that world has come to our own doorsteps. Even in this greater metropolitan area, there there are hundreds of language groups. People who desperately need to hear the truth that Jesus is Lord. And Father, may you continue to to bless us in our commitment to the Scriptures. Humble our hearts before the Word of God so that it would sit in judgment upon us, not we in judgment upon it. May the church be reformed and always reforming. As by your Spirit's enablement, we compare ourselves to the inerrant Word of God. And Father, I pray for those this morning, maybe just one individual who is here and and who does not know Christ as their own personal Savior. They are not known by Him. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. May they recognize that in Jesus and and His willing death and burial and glorious resurrection, in which the grave was conquered and, and sin broken, that they could have relief for their soul. May you draw them to yourself in saving faith even now. We pray for Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, beloved. Come back next week. We'll pick up that third point.